Christian practices, whether we're talking about meditation or contemplation, are really relational practices with maybe the amelioration of suffering as a byproduct. So we're not directly trying to resolve the issue of suffering, as I think especially within the context of a biblical worldview that says on this side of heaven, you know, we're not going to create a utopian society free of suffering, that there's some room for suffering there's some idea of course with with jesus going all the way to the cross that that suffering is redemptive that that there's purpose in pain and that pain can be refining for us as christians so there's evidence in i think through scripture and theology to support that and so i was seeing that although there were some attractive elements to buddhist mindfulness for christians i think we have some differences that need to be acknowledged that is dr josh nab and this is the well mind podcast the WellMind is a space for meaningful conversations about a broad range of wellness-related topics with a special emphasis on our mental wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Ben Coles, a clinical mental health counselor and counselor educator by trade and training with over 15 years of experience. Welcome or welcome back to the show. I'm excited to have you with me. This conversation is a real treat to share with you. And I want us to get into it, so I'm going to be brief in my intro here. My guest is Dr. Josh Nab. He's a board-certified clinical psychologist, and he's licensed in California to practice psychology. He's an administrator and educator. He does lots of trainings and speaking engagements. He's written a number of books and conducted his own original clinical research, and he is a practicing clinician. He's passionate, above all, about helping Christians to confidently draw upon the rich psychological and spiritual resources within their own faith tradition, all in the effort to grow closer to God and others. He also wants people to develop a deeper and more enduring contentment in God in the midst of pain and suffering. So we explore those themes and so much more. We talk about Christian mindfulness and contemplative practices, the importance of the Christian worldview within the field of psychotherapy, and integrating the Christian faith with evidence-based practices. We talk about his efforts and contributions to further legitimizing a faith-informed approach to psychological intervention, and we dive into the topics of suffering and how, through our faith and psychotherapeutic interventions, we can relate differently to our suffering here in this world. He draws upon the rich traditions of the Christian faith, all with the aim of strengthening our endurance and deepening our reliance on God's faithfulness. So here is episode 34 of the WellMind podcast, 21st Century Christian Mental Health. Dr. Josh Nab, thank you so much for joining the WellMind. Uh, I'm really excited to have you here, and I've been looking forward to our conversation for some time now. Thanks so much, Ben, for having me. I really appreciate you bringing me on and us getting to chat today. Yeah, for sure. So uh, just a little background for me. Um, I have been interested in utilizing skills and strategies and theoretical approaches from acceptance and commitment therapy for some time. And then it was just, you know, I mean, quote unquote, semi-recently within the last couple of years, really looking for Christian-based resources. And that was the first time I came across your book, 
And it was actually, I was just Google searching like a Christian based resources, uh, AC act, CBT, these kind of things. And I was like, who's, who's this, uh, Dr. Nab guy. And I started reading your stuff and I was just really enthralled and, and fascinated by some of the concepts that you were proposing and the way in which you were integrating Christian faith in really what I consider evidence-based practice, things that have a lot of research behind them. And then talking with some colleagues and those kind of things, they too parallel, not, not because we were talking, but parallel were reading some of your work as well. So we were just having some really rich discussion about that. And then fast forward to this past summer, you uh, were invited to present at a Christian counseling retreat in Wisconsin, which is a little bit of a distance from you, which we can that's get right. into, but that's where you and I first got to meet face to face. And that was just such a joy to get to spend that time with you. And so having you here today for the podcast is just a kind of the culmination for me of some really, a lot of professional interest uh, and engagement with your work. So yeah. That's that's kind of the long and short of it from my perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. And it's always great to talk to like-minded folks. And uh, this is something I get really excited about. But uh, interacting with secular communities as well, it's not always uh, a topic that comes up frequently. The you know religious and spiritual needs of our clients and how to go dig deeper into the Christian tradition. So that's been my my path, my my journey for the last maybe 10, 15 years is trying to dig deeper and deeper into the Christian tradition and to do so by continuing to stay engaged with uh, the broader mental health field, psychology, psychological science, so that we can bring legitimacy, relevance, uh, evidence-based practices to the marketplace of ideas instead of uh, you know, sort of a lot of the things we talk about in Christianity just being in the Christian living section of Barnes and Noble or something along mm -hmm. those lines. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a great uh, kind of teaser segue into a little bit about you and your background and history. Um, you've been in the field for a while now. Um, we both have a little bit of gray in our beard to, That's to right. <laughs> demonstrate that, but uh, I'd love for you to just introduce yourself a little bit more to the WellMind audience so we can get to know you. Yeah, I mean, a little bit about my personal story. I would say I grew up in a more conservative Christian home, and but in my adolescent years, my parents divorced, and and I went through a tough period of time. And so early on in life, I think I sort of was trained through my life experiences to think deeply about things psychologically, existentially, spiritually, uh, not knowing, you know, worldview language, but thinking in terms of bigger picture worldview things. And so I ended up sort of falling away from my Christian faith in my adolescent years. I like to call it my prodigal period of time, just sort of wandered away and came back to my faith in my early 20s into my mid-20s. I went through my own personal psychotherapy and realized that psychotherapy and professional services really can help people. And wanting to find ways to bring that understanding into the church. Uh, I did not have experiences in the church of, of feeling connected during that tumultuous period of time. And so I think some of those experiences led me to, to really want to bring psychology into the church and bring the church into psychology, sort of this bi-directionality to do both. And, um, 
So at times I might be talking about Christian practices at a secular psychology conference. And at other times I might be talking about these Christian practices in church settings and, and some of the evidence to support those. And so uh, I, I think my, I guess, perspective is that Christians offer a lot within these discussions on psychology on, you know, what we might call astute psychological insights into the human condition. And so wanting to talk more boldly and openly and in, interact with scientific methods to to try to draw that out for, for many different communities. And so uh, I went to graduate school, went to a Christian university. A lot of the uh, approaches that I stumbled on or learned about in graduate school, what we might call faith integration, so kind of taking this large body of secular theory and research and then trying to find ways to fit Christian theology into that and uh, you know, I was grateful for that. I mean, the people that came before us, I think, paved the way for many of these discussions we're having now. And so I'm, I'm very grateful, standing on the shoulders of giants. At the same time, I was sort of dissatisfied. Um, one of the experiences that really brought this to the forefront is, is I often was looking around and, and training in some of the newer acceptance and commitment kinds of therapies and mindfulness-based therapies and recognizing that many draw from Buddhist mindfulness and asking the question, does Christianity offer its own meditative, meditative contemplative heritage so that as Christians, we're not just taking what the secular community offers us and then sort of trying to Christianize it. And so into graduate school, into some of my uh, training a bit further along, my postdoctoral fellowship, really started wrestling with what might it look like for Christians to bring our own practices to the proverbial table, reminiscent of what was happening in the mindfulness movement, that you really have folks who maybe were practicing themselves in Eastern practices and and then, you know, in graduate school learned how to research this kind of stuff and started defining things with precision and measuring things and then manualizing things and then looking at, you know, pre and post intervention scores on these measures that they've developed. And so I started asking the question, why can't we do the same out of the Christian tradition? which you know, is what I might call meditative diversity, the idea that there are many meditative practices across faith traditions. And so why can't clients have choices about which meditative practices they draw from? And so that's been kind of my journey as uh, a therapist, as someone who does assessment, as a psychologist, as a researcher and writer. I'm currently at California Baptist University, which is a great place for me to do those things. I am a professor of psychology. I direct a doctoral program in clinical psychology. And then I now am serving in an associate dean role for our psychology division. So lots, lots I have going on there. But my passion, I think more than anything else, is talking therapy and talking interventions and thinking about helping faith communities through their psychological suffering. And so that's what I get most excited about, which which is what uh, I'm excited to talk to you about yeah. today. So, Yeah, for sure. Uh, I really appreciate you taking a moment here to walk through that historical context for you because it really uh, reveals the why, why this is so important mm -hmm. to you. And so much of that is tied to our lived experience, especially in those formative years of adolescence, right? But yes. that's, we're learning about who we are and where we fit in the larger community. Um, and it sounds like there was a lot of tension just internally for you because what you were experiencing just didn't match up with 
what was being maybe said or talked about in that conservative Christian community. You know, just maybe they're talking about that sanctity of marriage mm -hmm. uh, being a lifelong commitment. And then here you are as an adolescent and your family is not that way, that it's it's apart. It's two, it's creating two separate families. Yeah. And yeah. and so then it makes sense that there's this then wandering that happens because as adolescents, right, we we don't know which way's up and down necessarily. Yeah. And so we're, we're, and I don't know about you, but, you know, as, as an adolescent, we're always not receptive to the other people in our life telling us things. It's like, no, oh, I got to figure it out for myself or I know better or something like that. You have a knowing smile on your face. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I absolutely agree. Yeah. And, and so then, you know, coming into early adulthood, um, you know, in a sense, you know, like you you called it your prodigal years. Uh, right. You know that that's uh, a vivid picture for sure. Um, but then returning to a place where you were able to see a value in your yeah. Christian faith and yeah. a place for that in your life and a central place, so much so that you've really constructed a professional identity mm -hmm. around uh, these two pieces that don't always fit together super well. I, a lot of what you talked about from a developmental or professional standpoint makes sense to me because I experienced that too, where it was like theology, uh, Christianity, my faith, that was like on one side. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, I was learning about all this, like all these helping skills and the ways of intervening and addressing mental health, but never the two shall meet. You know, That's and, right. and, and so, you know, good mentors, reading, those kind of things start to bring those together. But mm -hmm. the essence is we have to conceptualize that for ourselves. What does that yeah. look like? And That's and right. so uh, you're at this point now where um, as a licensed psychologist, you have that clinical experience and background and you have this teaching experience and there's some leadership, it sounds like, roles that you have now, those kind of things. Um, so what's, what is important to you right now in terms of contributing to that, that just that landscape of professional counseling? counseling? You, you talked about legitimizing, yeah. you know, faith, religious, spiritual-based interventions or approaches. Um, yeah, talk to, talk to us a little bit about what's important right now for you and the roles that you're in. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I get most excited about, I'm most passionate about, I think helping faith communities psychologically and spiritually, holistically. I think that oftentimes there can be a gap between if I call it secular psychology and, and I have been more intentional about calling it that because I don't think secular psychology has the monopoly on psychology. I think there have been psychologies throughout history. There's a Christian psychology and a Buddhist psychology and a Jewish psychology, et cetera. And so being clear that I think that secular psychologies often uh, seem to think they have the monopoly on understanding you know, psychological processes. And, and yet when it talk, when we talk about counseling and clinical psychology, these conversations are so worldview dependent because of our suffering and making sense of suffering happens in the context of a worldview. Going all the way back to my own experiences where I felt my worldview sort of shattered it for a period of time and wanting to put the pieces back together and have a worldview to make sense of human suffering and change and what optimal functioning and flourishing looks like and what to do with suffering on this side of heaven. And so right now I'm 
I'm, I feel especially called to help faith communities, which I think are often underserved. And that might mm-hmm. sound odd, but oftentimes we have maybe church life. And then, as you said, it's separated out from maybe psychology and psychology. We just call it that, but it's really secular psychology. And, and we often have psychologists, uh, you know, in survey data, we know that psychologists tend to be very secular, not see religion and spirituality as central to mental health and holistic health. And yet the clients we serve, at least if, you know, the latest Pew survey data are, are accurate, at least two thirds, I think, of American adults still identify on some level as Christian. And so there's this gap between when we think about professional services and the clients we serve. And so I feel called to really try to close that gap through evidence-based practices, through this idea that often when we think about, you know, mindfulness, it, it comes to us from the Buddhist tradition, and that's often presented to clients as if it's the only meditative practice. So I think a lot of these streams have come together to form this river that is trying to help underserved religious communities to make sense of suffering in ways that are deeply engaged with, anchored to the Bible and historic Christianity, but also deeply engaged with some of the newer advancements in psychology. So really feeling called to do that in my professional life, whether that's in research and writing or trainings or interacting with churches and being active in my own local church. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, so good. Um, Just referencing for myself, you know, at the same retreat, I was presenting on, you know, a Christian ethics approach to counseling. And you use that word holistic. And that's something that I think is so important because lots of people seem to throw that term out. Yeah. And it's like holistic, except, you know, and then they, you know, it, it's to the exclusion in some respects of uh, appreciating or valuing a client's Christian faith. Right. And that's right. And and so I think even within the secular counseling community, there's still a contingency and group that's, uh, I think, growing that is advancing uh, the integration of spirituality and religion and counseling as part of this holistic, in, in many respects, multicultural perspective right. on helping people that, that we need to place a value on this. It's not, it's not an exclusionary item. That's right. Um, and so then, like when I was teaching the ethics course in our counseling program here at Bethany, you know, this was something too that we talked about is, yes, from a, a Christian perspective, we want to examine these evidence-based practices or these recommendations in light of our Christian worldview yeah. and appreciate it from that perspective. That's kind of the the filter through which these science-based things need to pass. But the other way is important too, in that things that emerge from a religious community or a a particular faith tradition Mm -hmm. uh, ought to also be examined and in some respects tested, especially when it's in the context of a a, a psychological intervention, Mm -hmm. right? Because I think sometimes that's why legitimacy within professional Christian counseling circles has been questioned because there just isn't that evidence base that's, that's saying, right. well, you know, this is what we see in God's word, or this is what we, this is an application that we've uh, constructed based on, you know, this Christian tradition, but then there's no examination of it to mm-hmm. see, well, 
how does it work? What is the impact? What are the outcomes when this is applied to these set of issues at this particular time? And then we kind of fall into a trap of like uh, defending it when there isn't a body of research to defend it with. Yeah. That's right. I I agree. I mean, I think when suffering is something that we're dealing with when we walk alongside our suffering clients, I think we do need to investigate to make sure what we're doing works. There's just too much on the line uh, to to just dismiss the idea of scientific methods to investigate. And so I think we can learn from secular communities through scientific methods, but then apply them to our own faith tradition so that clients can feel comfortable operating from within their own worldview. A few kind of thoughts there. One would be that the assumption, unfortunately, a lot of times in in secular psychology and counseling is that there's this neutrality. Instead, I think that that everyone operates from a worldview. And it's about, and, and these worldview assumptions that we have are often untestable, meaning that they, we're operating from them, but they're not uh, being explicitly acknowledged. And then we assume neutrality. And then when there's a religious client or therapist, it's, oh, that's a worldview that needs to be checked at the door. But in fact, we all operate from a worldview, whether that's a view of reality or knowledge, a view of humankind, a view of uh, values, uh, you know, prioritizing values in therapy. A quick example might be within many, you know, secular types of therapies and counseling theory research. We promote individualism and hedonism and even determinism. And there's a downplaying of human will and agency and a more collectivistic understanding of how my behavior might impact the family or my marriage or the community. There's oftentimes, uh, you know, if we think about epistemology and, and knowledge, where we get knowledge, there's a playing up of science, quote unquote, I'll put it in quotes, because yeah. most of what we consider science is really untested theory. And there is some data that we need to try to collect and interpret, but it's it's uh, at the core, I think, of a lot of these conversations are worldview-dependent hypotheses and worldview-dependent theories. And so we need to be more explicit about acknowledging them. And, and so that Christians can have our own theories we develop, we can have our own uh, you know, ways of understanding the world that are worldview dependent like everyone else. But I think worldview transparency, I think, is going to be important as we think about diversity and culture and that these conversations need to be at the center of what we do, not on the periphery. So I think worldview is really important. Another way that I've been thinking through this distinction of late is, uh, and some of my colleagues have been doing this as well, is as we think about research and writing and the intersection of culture, uh, from anthropology, we have emic and etic. Etic meaning outsider, global. So this is what historically I think we've done in in secular counseling and psychology, where we assume that we're going to find these global universal theories and then empirically supported treatments and everyone's going to agree. And these are kind of outsider approaches, meaning that we develop these theories outside of being in close proximity to the communities we serve. On the other hand, and so from an, uh, the perspective of anthropology, it's sort of like you're studying a culture from the dis- from a distance. And there is some value to looking for universals, but I think if if we've taken a history of psychology course, we know that we gave up a long time ago in agreeing on universals. Uh, and so we need to be humble in acknowledging that we have we have new theories by the day. 
And so we can't agree on really just about anything. Uh, on the other hand, an emic approach is an insider approach. That's the anthropologist going into the community, mm-hmm. trying to understand the beliefs and practices, mm-hmm. motivations, inner world of the people that they have joined. And I think there's room for both in psychology and counseling. An emic approach would say, what do Christians believe in terms of health and dysfunction and change processes, and then using scientific methods, I think, to to try to confirm some of those things. And so we don't just need an outsider approach that has maybe secular communities doing all the research for us and then importing those theories and research into Christian communities. But instead, within our own communities, we can balance that out with emic approaches, which is some of the stuff that I've been doing. And so whether we're talking about worldview and being more worldview transparent, that we all have worldviews and we're all making some assumptions as we approach our research or, or practice, and that they can be explicitly acknowledged so that we can give our clients options, because after all, our clients operate from a worldview too, which needs yeah. to be considered. And then in terms of emic etic distinctions. I think there is a role for some more global things, but the question would be who's psychology, right? If we say there's this grand psychology, it's usually the person who has their worldview assumptions applied that thinks it's their psychology that should be the grand psychology. So I think I think we're moving in a direction, my hope is, where we have an acknowledgement that there are a plurality of psychologies, not not in a postmodern way, but the idea that we we can each each community can present for itself a, a psychological understanding of these things and then test those things, and and I think in doing so we're going to better serve our clients so that we don't have this gap, like I mentioned before, of secular psychology developing theories without an awareness that for many Christians God is at the center of reality uh, and, and at the center of thinking about values and and priorities and practice. And so we can do a better job of developing more diverse theories and then empirically confirm them so that our Christian clients have choices. Yeah. 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 So well put. So well put. Better better than I could do. <laughs> For sure. No, that's fantastic. Well, but that that directly speaks to the work that you have done and are doing within this, uh, like the practice of Christian contemplation. Uh, You've referenced this a couple of times already today in our conversation of meditative practices or mindfulness practices that have an Eastern-based kind of origin or philosophy that have been then secularized by secular psychology and practice, Mm -hmm. and then Christianized or brought into the Christian faith and saying, well, here, this is, this, these are the tools that we have, you know, this is what's in the toolbox. So you got to use these. Um, And again, some of those can be highly effective and very useful. A number of my clients says, but they are not, their origin isn't within that Christian faith or a biblical perspective. So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about um, how you have investigated from this MX standpoint, these mm-hmm. Christian contemplative practices that end up, you know, uh, kind of in your Christian meditation book that you have. Um, yeah. Yeah. Let's go yeah. there. Yeah, I think so. So earlier on, I mentioned a little bit of this before looking at mindfulness and saying, wow, there's something to that. And I'll admit it was attractive to me in terms of some of its 
philosophical underpinnings and then the idea that it works. And it was attractive to me also because of my own experiences of saying, wow, I'm not going to be able to fully eliminate a lot of the suffering that I'm going through. I have to relate differently to it. And so on a personal level, and as I was going through my training, supervised training to get hours for licensure, I was seeing that many of my clients were not you know, eliminating their symptoms the way this, you know, optimistic traditional cognitive behavioral tradition presented in, you know, going into the 21st uh, century and, and a little bit into the 21st century. And so I think the idea of being more accepting of our experiences was attractive and that a lot of the mindfulness-based approaches come from Buddhist philosophy and then the larger uh, religious worldview that talks a lot about suffering, that life is suffering, the cause of suffering is desire, if we look at the Four Noble Truths. And I started digging a little bit deeper and recognizing that when we say mindfulness, I mean, it, it's really what we call an insight meditation. And and so what are we gaining insight into? Well, in Buddhism, we we look at a view of reality, an accurate view of reality, a, a, what's been called the three marks of existence, the idea that life is suffering, everything is impermanent, and there's no individual self. And so more and more I was seeing as I started looking at really the backdrop of some of these pra practices that they were really informed by uh, that that worldview. And, and for Christians, there's a you know, we might call it a telos. There's a different purpose or telos. You know, teleology is a part of worldview, as I mentioned worldview before. What's the ultimate goal or ultimate aim? And so I think for mindfulness, it's it's to it's an insight meditation to gain access into the three marks of existence, uh, to, to better understand those. For Christians, though, there's a different telos for Christian practices. And so that became apparent as I was digging deeper. Christian practices, whether we're talking about meditation or contemplation, are really relational practices with maybe the amelioration of suffering as a byproduct. So we're not directly trying to resolve the issue of suffering, as I think especially within the context of a biblical worldview that says on this side of heaven, you know, we're not going to create a utopian society free of suffering, that there's some room for suffering there's some idea of course with with Jesus going all the way to the cross that that suffering is redemptive that that there's purpose in pain and that pain can be refining for us as Christians so there's evidence in i think through scripture and theology to support that and so i was seeing that although there were some attractive elements to buddhist mindfulness for Christians, I think we have some differences that need to be acknowledged. And so I still have colleagues who research what's called Christian accommodative mindfulness and, and feel as though there's, there's nothing, uh, there, there's no tension there in doing so. Um, you know, just as long as we accommodate the Christian tradition, but I started thinking, well, that's one way of doing things, but I wonder about digging deeper into our own tradition, being inspired by what I saw happening with clinical psychology and, and the development of these practices, but to have a Christian telos in mind, a Christian purpose. And so as we think about these various practices in the Christian tradition, I like using the idea of Lexio Divina or divine reading, which comes out of monastic culture in Christianity to, to really capture the different elements there. Sometimes they're used, inter used interchangeably, but I like separating them out as a researcher to think through them, you know, separately, but then with overlap. So we have, we're anchored to scripture, we're reading scripture, then we're meditating on scripture, we're uh, pondering, thinking deeply about, then we're praying. So we're integrating prayer and this reciprocity with God. And then the last step is contemplating. So 
as I think about this four-step Lexio Divina, and Lexio Divina is Latin for divine reading. So it's been used throughout historic Christianity to, to interact with God's word, the Bible, uh, to develop a deeper intimacy with God, to, to focus the mind on God. And, and I started interacting with a lot of these sources and recognizing we have a rich heritage and I could define these things, put them in manuals and steps to practice, and then research them in the same way that mindfulness did it. And so in Christianity, I think the ultimate telos is what I might describe as communion with God, a deeper fellowship with God, that we're not so much trying to get rid of our suffering, but change our relationship to it because God is present and God is walking with us through the suffering. I was reading uh, one historic Christian source um, uh, on the Jesus prayer. So the Jesus prayer is Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me. It comes out of the Eastern Orthodox tradition and it's used to focus the mind, to practice God's presence and a few other things. But one author pointed out that the Jesus prayer is what we call an indirect method. Indirect meaning that we don't try to directly eliminate our thoughts, our feelings, you know, sort of the, consistent with that traditional CBT optimism of symptom reduction or elimination, which is what managed care wants, right? As they pay our bills, uh, you know, we send claims to them and looking for eight sessions of this or 10 sessions of that. But the author talked about in the context of the Jesus prayer, an indirect method, meaning that we notice the experience and then we gently shift towards something else, recognizing we don't want it to take up too much of our energy and there, it's in the nature of the mind to to have random thoughts and those kinds of things. So I think bringing back the idea of Lexio Divina, we're reading scripture, we're uh, meditating on scripture, we're praying to God and we're contemplating. And I think that can be helpful for Christians in the context of psychological suffering because if we use it as an indirect method, we're learning how to relate differently to it in many ways reminiscent of mindfulness and gaining insight, but we're gaining insight into the fallen human mind and gaining insight into the idea that God is at the center and God is interacting with us and we can walk through suffering because he's present. So I'll go ahead and stop there. And uh, But but I think uh, that would be yeah. sort of my introduction to how to maybe separate out Christian practices, and then they can be integrated together or separated out for individual use. Yeah. 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 That And so you covered a ton of ground mm -hmm. there. <laughs> you covered a lot of ground. So I want to just uh, unpack a couple of things sure. within that. Um, so that, and, and part of part of the reason why I want to do this is because I want to make it accessible and tangible yeah. for um, somebody to, that's listening to say, okay, well, what does that actually look like? You yeah. know, what, what, what are we talking about that, you know, practice of uh, divine reading? Um, you use, uh, so specifically that you use some uh, lay language uh, that's metaphoric okay. of bite, chew, taste, savor as kind of this description of this four-step process. Um, and all of that is not looking inward but rather looking outward towards God's word, right? To what is what is God communicating to me in his word? And this is a, a, a method or a process of doing that that applies it directly to my lived experience. Yeah. Does that 
Is that accurate? So I think far? so. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think so. For example, let's use the use the example of somebody who's maybe struggling with self criticism. So, shame and self criticism, and then compassion as a way to respond to that is really popular in clinical psychology right now. Absolutely. So what would be, yep. you know, and loving kindness meditation, these mantras to conjure up uh, from, from within compassion. And so what might be the Christian version of that in the context of Lexio Divina? And by the way, the bite, chew, taste, savor is really that there's a rich heritage of monastic culture that really draws upon that, which I've always just been very attracted to the idea of chewing in monastic Christian culture is the idea of like a cow chewing cud in the field. So when we say meditation, a synonym for that might be rumination. And we often think of rumination as negative, yeah, but that, we're that's always- a, That's a yeah, symptom of something that's problematic. Right. Yeah. But, but in monastic culture, the idea would be that our mind is always ruminating on something. It's what we choose deliberately to ruminate on that's key. Are we ruminating on God's word, God's promises, who God is, his attributes, his actions, maybe this grand narrative of the, of the Bible and what we're moving towards, or are we getting lost in our own mind? But we're always ruminating. So Lexio Divina with within the context of self-criticism, if somebody's saying, you know, I'm worthless, we'll say, the, the Lexio Divina would be, well, let's anchor ourselves to God's word. Maybe it's, you know, First John, God is love. And instead of being self-preoccupied with my own worth, I am beginning to recite that. Uh, I, I'm beginning to chew on that. God is love. And then I'm praying to God, God, help me to really feel your love, to experience your love. So we're biting, we're chewing, we're tasting as we interact with God. And then the savoring piece, I think, is where we are allowing a lot of the words to drop off. And maybe we just have one word like love. And we're just settling into our relationship with God. We are uh, uh, practicing God's presence, not through over, you know, I guess, a wordiness, but through silence, loving silence. I like to think about it as, you know, the four steps of Lexio Divina, like getting to know a good friend. We initially maybe want to know about that friend. If the friend has social media, we read about that friend. We ask that friend questions. We think deeply about some of these things. We share stories. We interact. So, you know, we are reading, we're meditating, we're praying. But then at a certain point, I think it becomes helpful to learn how to just be with that friend without you know spending so much time in talking about facts and but to just experience that friend and so we might be sitting at the beach and just enjoying watching the waves or riding in the car and just enjoying the silence maybe even thinking about a, a one spouse or significant other that that you're just enjoying the silence that you don't always feel the need to use words to capture the experience, the direct experience. And so I think sometimes as Christians, we can get nervous about that final step of contemplation. But I think there's something happening in the silence that is God's presence and God's loving presence that we can just rest in. So in the context of self-criticism, I might notice that and then the indirect method will be I gently pivot towards Lexio Divina. 
God is love. Maybe I, I read, uh, you know, the context for that scripture, maybe a few verses, and then I start to meditate on God is love. And when I notice my mind drift inevitably towards the I'm worthless thought, I just gently bring it back to God is love. And, and then I pray to God, right? God, help me to, to feel your presence. Help me to feel your, your love and to recognize that you're loving me in this very moment. And then I just sit in silence with God. Maybe I recite the word love. Maybe I don't. But I think there are Christian practices such as these that offer us an equivalent to mindfulness meditation, but, but going deeper into our own heritage and really prioritizing communion with God. And the idea would be that if the symptoms go away, that's great. If they don't, well, I have God as a trustworthy traveling companion and that will be fine too. Yeah. Yeah. And that, so I appreciate that very tangible uh, uh, example. And I think that that's really, really helpful um, you know, even as you as I'm listening to you, I'm kind of reflecting on my own experiences and thinking about that, especially that savoring step yeah. that that um, that's maybe hard, as you pointed out, because that's not uh, that's not a typical or or standard practice for yeah. folks. Um, but I think because of that also it's it's not just that it's, unknown, but I think that's, it's a bit uncomfortable for people, people, um, in, in general, um, silence might be, uh, you know, distressing actually. Um, and, and we live in a very noisy world and Mm -hmm. I don't just mean auditory, but just stuff things that we get flooded with constantly. So to be able to, to quiet that, to be able to be silent and to be uh, focused not on ourselves, but on that that relationship that we have with God, I think that's pretty uh, pretty important and and poignant. Because the the other piece that you were talking about was suffering, and that there's a different understanding of suffering within the Christian. Uh, worldview within a yeah. biblical understanding of suffering, and I, and maybe this is a this is a not an important distinction. I don't know, or maybe it's not a distinction at all. But I'll I'll kind of throw it out there for you to to respond to. Mm-hmm. Um, that there's there's suffering in in two different ways. There's suffering um, because of being in a sin filled world being in a fallen world, being in a fallen state ourselves. And this would be that Christian worldview that um, we don't have a, a writing reflex, but actually our proclivity is to uh, move away from God's will for us and towards self-indulgence and, and these kind yeah. of things, which is, you know, we talk about sin. So there's that aspect of suffering, of being in a fallen state. But ultimately, there's a different kind of suffering that is more uh this, you know, in our current life, but also um, something that we think about in eternity, and that's suffering because of separation from mm-hmm. God. You know, yeah. that's where suffering entered the world is when there became a, div- a division between God and his people because yeah. of sin. Yeah. And so we often want to alleviate or reduce, you know, or, or ameliorate the suffering mm-hmm. from being in a fallen world. Yeah. 
without addressing the suffering that we're experiencing because we're separated from God. And this flips, in my mind, this flips that on its head where we're trying to alleviate the suffering of being distant from God and separated from him by uh, communing with him through his word um, only because of Christ, right? That's the only way that we have that pathway to God. Um, But the, the worldly suffering then becomes secondary. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. I think that, and that's where I think the indirect methods really are helpful in that we're saying that yes, in a fallen, broken world, we have a lot of these symptoms, but we're we're shifting our focus to the core issue. We're shifting our focus to what should be prioritized so that we can more effectively endure on this side of heaven, the suffering. I, I really like the the Lutheran theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks a lot about, you know, in Genesis, this, the, the shame and what that is. And that got me really thinking about shame and the psychology of shame and the experience of shame. And, and, you know, he basically says that shame is a powerless longing to return to the creator and, and the origin, right? That we're banished from the garden. We're at that time prior to, you know, sort of Christ's restoration, uh, I'm sorry, redemption, you know, there's this, there's this separation from that you're talking about. And there's, a, he talks about a powerless longing there to return to the, the creation. I, I like to, I like to describe shame as um, incompleteness, this idea. So, so we often think of shame as like badness and it, it's, it's personal, uh, you know, sort of I'm, I'm, you know, uh, uh, worthless or useless or unlovable mm-hmm. or, yeah, some sort of I, defectiveness. That's right. I wonder if there's something to shame as a signal about our incompleteness. There's something there, and I haven't fully fleshed this out as a Christian psychologist, but mm. I, I've been thinking through this on a deeper level in the last few months, this idea that that our shame reveals an incompleteness, that powerless longing that Bonhoeffer talks about, that 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 we are there's a not quite rightness about who we are outside of this deeper, more loving communion with God. And, and that a lot of this other stuff is maybe uh, m- more symptoms of that deeper issue. So I think that's probably getting at on some level what yeah. you're describing. So yeah. flipping it is that the relationship becomes central and then either the symptoms go away by God's grace or they don't. But if I prioritize my relationship with God and communing with God and sanctification and becoming more like Christ as I walk with him, then the symptoms kind of, you know, kind of go into the background. It's sort of foreground background. And I'm shifting from seeing the symptoms as the primary issue to seeing God as the primary issue in my intimacy with him. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, yeah, I don't know. There's, uh, the story of uh, Christ teaching and he sends his disciples out onto the boat to go across uh, the lake ahead of him. And he goes off on his own uh, to commune with his father, right? To, to yeah. talk with his father. And he does that in isolation. Mm-hmm. And so this is Christ approaching his father um, and, and being intentional with taking that, that time. Yeah. And right, Christ is the bridge, right? It, it, he's he's the one that re, has reconnected us. It's the tearing down of the cloth between the most holy mm-hmm. place and His people, and mm-hmm. um, and it's so it's such a stark 
image for me to see Christ in that moment communing with his father. And then the when he leaves them, right, the, the disciples are out on the boat and yeah. they're having a really hard night. It's a mm-hmm. terrible storm and they're out on the water. And this is like, this is their chaos. This is, you know, they're fearing for their life. And then Christ comes into that storm. It's their storm. It's not his. They're the ones in that amidst that suffering. Um, and he calls to his disciple uh, to come out onto the water uh, to to see him. And just the contrast between thinking the boat is the safe place yeah. for these disciples, but actually being close to Christ is right. the safest place, even though what's less safe than walking on water (laughs) in the midst of a storm, right? So there's this paradox of um, that that as we move toward pain and suffering, that Christ Christ is there with us. He he promises to be there. And we see that in this story and many other biblical examples too, um, that when we are connected with Christ, then it the the context yeah is less important that's right it fades into the background mm-hmm. i related to what we're talking about here i've been fascinated by in the context of christian specifically christian mental health this idea of god's providence god's good governance god's protective care that god works in and through things that we might not consider part of god's plan or now this gets us into some difficult territory of theodicy and suffering and yeah but as i read through historic christian writings and scripture and when Jesus says, do not worry. And there's something I think about this ability to develop a deeper trust in God's providential care, God's good governance, his protective care, that God is a benevolent king. And that even though I might not have all the answers to understanding suffering, I can trust in, put my faith in. And throughout historic Christianity, I think many Christian writers who I think were some of the original psychologists, they just didn't have the, the PhD or this idea after their name, <laughs> uh, you know, but but they didn't go to graduate school. But uh, but I think I think that they've offered these keen psychological insights into this idea that we attain a deeper peace and contentment when there's a, a, a trust in God. Uh, you know, the Puritans talked a lot about sort of, you know, sovereign, the sovereignty of God, but, but more specifically, that doesn't capture God's goodness. And so it's mm-hmm. providence is this combination of God's infinite goodness and power and wisdom and presence, I think, that together means that like that parent who we run into their arms with the, you know, lightning and thunder outside, everything's going to be okay in knowing I have this parent to protect. Psychologically, there's something that's deeply I think peaceful uh, mm. about that. You know, the psalmist says, "Like a weaned child, I am content." Mm-hmm. That that's what I see as Christian mental health. The idea that you know, even though the fallen world is falling apart around me, hence the title, "Fallen World." Right? That yeah. that I still have this deeper peace in knowing that I I follow and worship a good God. And then the the son is the ultimate, like you said, bridge and the great high priest. And we can 
uh, you know, approach God's throne of grace with that confidence and knowing that Jesus understands our weaknesses and, and you know, welcomes us because of his, uh, you know, sort of the union we have with Christ. So anyway, I, th I think as we talk about suffering, I think there's something in the Christian tradition that's unique about this idea of a benevolent governor who orchestrates and whether we talk about God allowing or causing, but that we see God's presence in and through even things that seem to be suffering. Yeah. And, and this uh, concept of suffering, pain, hardship, uh, separation from God. This is a this is a theme that has come up on the well mind in previous mm. uh, episodes for sure. And I've I just I I really value the perspective that you're bringing here, and I think it adds uh, a richness to previous conversations. So you know, as I'm thinking about uh, talking with my my good friend Pastor James Hine, you know, the, we had a whole a whole discussion on kind of quote unquote, the problem of suffering. Um, and it's oftentimes our perspective on it. And in another conversation with, with a dear friend, Mike Novotny, um, who has a book, Hagah, on three words. And um, it, it's just, uh, yeah, I think this is, this is an important theme. This is definitional to some things that we talk about on this podcast. And I, I just really value that. Um, can I ask a follow-up question absolutely, here, absolutely. Josh? Yeah. Yeah. So, what we're talking about is is really, um, like again, moving toward God in our action, and we can do that because of Christ. Um, and then there's this like endurance. I think is the word that you used yeah. with with our present sufferings. Yeah. Um, but often we're either taught or we figure out or we're wired to try and avoid pain and yeah. suffering and and like minimize that. Um, so I, I wonder how how we can think about or how we can approach this topic of saying, well, like, yeah, I, I actually like avoidance, experiential avoidance of my pain and suffering is problematic. It, it, it creates more difficulty. Yeah. And, and, then you can maybe speak a little bit about this experiential acceptance because yeah. that seems to tie in here. Yeah, I think in in you know secular clinical psychology, it's it's talked about increasingly and helps to make sense of all kinds of problems. So we, I think, used to be, as I mentioned before, optimistic that we're going to get rid of our pain and suffering. And we're now learning how to relate differently to, which I think is the ultimate outcome of successful counseling and psychotherapy. A client comes in and says, help me get rid of this thing and exits therapy if it's successful and says, thank you for helping me relate differently to this thing. It doesn't go away. And so acceptance is, I think, key. Uh, Steve Hayes of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy talks a lot about the idea that the Latin root for acceptance is to take what is offered, or another definition might be to receive willingly. It doesn't mean we agree with it, but it means that the alternative avoidance doesn't work. In the long run, when we try to avoid inner pain, whether that's our thoughts or our feelings, our sensations, our memories, images, the whole host of inner experiences, when we try to avoid them, 
things get worse, a quick example might be panic attacks, which can easily lead to panic disorder. You know, one minute a day, a definitely scary, distressing experience of a panic attack, but then I might be preoccupied the remaining 23 hours and 59 minutes about having subsequent panic attacks. I stay indoors. I'm embarrassed. I don't go outside. I don't go to you know Walmart for the groceries because that's where I had my last panic attack. So interestingly, I think I, I love the Greek word in the New Testament, hupomane, which is goes all the way back to, of course, uh, maybe it's used about 30 times in the New Testament. Often the word is patience in like the New Interla- International Version and some others. But 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 the the really what we're talking about is endurance in the midst of suffering. There's a separate word, patience, also used in the New Testament, which is macrothumia, which is endurance or patience in the form of relationships. So both are fascinating. Mm -hmm. The hupomane is interesting to me because we see, if you look at, you know, uh, William Barclay's New Testament words. I, I love that book because it breaks down a lot of these words, and I think there's such psychologically rich material there. Yeah. Uh, and and he talks about sort of uh, you know that's the theme of Revelation uh, is is the endurance of the early church in light of persecution. That word endurance is used with the early Christian martyrs and and the writings there. The prayer is may you endure to the end as you're being marched to the Colosseum. And and that you endure so that you don't renounce your faith and you know sacrifice to to the you know Caesar, and and so even in the writings of the early desert Christians, you know Christians in the you know third fourth century, they started moving to to the deserts when you know Christianity was really institutionalized with Constantine, et cetera. And they said, whoa, we 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 don't we're not on board with all this power and materialistic you know preoccupations, and and so they went to the desert. And there's a famous saying of, uh, you know stay in your cell, stay put in your cell. The cell was a small room that the early desert Christians lived in. It's still to this day uh, called a monastic cell in, in, you know, a monastic life. But it was the idea that you need to face your inner world. You need to endure that you don't want to flee the cell, that the early desert Christians often had nothing to do in their cell. They had to face their inner world. They may be engaged in simple tasks like, like basket weaving. But the idea was that that running from your cell, which represented the inner world, was not the answer. That the answer was to stay put and to face your inner world, and that you could do so because God was present. You could do so because God was with you in the cell. And I think we can learn a lot from secular psychology and some of these new acceptance-based approaches that have tried to sort of balance out our optimism from the 20th century to say, mm-hmm. we're not going to be able to eliminate all this stuff. It's not consistent with reality. Uh, we live in a, in a suffering world. And, and then the, these, these experiences of, of Christians throughout history have said, trying to run from and avoid suffering doesn't work. It's on this side of heaven, we cannot create a utopia. We won't be free from suffering. And so then pragmatically, I think clinical psychologists have started to ask, well, pragmatically, we need to accept. If we return to our conversation on providence, I think for Christians, we can endure for a few reasons. One, pragmatically, it doesn't work. If we look at the early desert Christians, I mean, fleeing your cell doesn't work. Wherever you go, your pain will be waiting for you. And uh, and then also that that if we see that God is active and present in and through these experiences, that that we relate differently to them instead of seeing them as the enemy, we can begin to ask the question. For example, 
are my emotions God-given signals that are revealing something to me? That's a very different conversation. Real quick here. Um, yeah. The the clinical psychologist Steve Hayes of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, um, he he's been very supportive of of faith based approaches to act and and, uh, and 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 you know dialogued with me about that and just just been so supportive in ways that like many secular psychologists just aren't as engaged with faith communities, but. Within ACT, he talks about what's called the dashboard metaphor. He used this recently in a in his Psychology Today article in a newsletter he sends out. But the idea is that our dashboard has lights that reveal things to us. So we have a check engine light and a low tire pressure light, et cetera, maybe a low fuel light. And we can reset these lights. We can, uh, you know, find clever ways to do so on YouTube and other places. I've, I've done that, uh, you know, a, a YouTube video to pump the gas three times and hit the brakes four times and <laughs> it miraculously goes away. But the underlying issue doesn't go away. Right. And so reminiscent of the, the, our emotional world, we can try to avoid. But in the end, if our emotions are signals, then we need to, like that light, allow it to guide our path and help us to reveal important information about our functioning and our experiences and our needs. So, you know, sadness tells us we've lost something in a fallen world and we need to slow down to grieve and then to not impulsively but thinking through what do i need to replace in terms of what was lost anxiety is future oriented and alerts us to a perceived future catastrophe we have uh fear which is present oriented even our moral emotions reveal important information guilt which is often downplayed or disavowed in our society especially Mm -hmm. in secular counseling and therapy uh get rid of it right uh actually tells us we need to maybe repent to use Christian language and and go another way and repair a rupture. So returning to the Hayes Hayes metaphor of of the dashboard metaphor, uh, I think for Christians, if we see our emotions as God-given signals, we're not going to so quickly flee the cell, run from our emotions, but instead, like the psalmist and, you know, with the lament psalms, we can cry out to God Mm -hmm. and we can ask God, what are you doing in and through my emotional world? So we move from pragmatically avoidance to acceptance because avoidance doesn't work. But also if God is revealing himself to us through these experiences, there's something he's up to and we can slow down to notice it. So acceptance is yes, pragmatic, but also I think for Christians uh, asking the question, what is God doing through this experience? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and from a biblical perspective, we don't have to look any further than the Garden of Gethsemane to, right. to see that, right? That's God's right. ultimate act of love through that suffering. That's right. Um, so, I, yeah, that, that's, uh, again, I really appreciate that perspective and offering that, um, yeah, for our listeners. So, I'm being cognizant of our time. I could, sure. I could, we could, we could keep talking about this stuff for a long time, which it just says, ma'am, we need to uh, do this again. But um, you haven't talked about your new project, which is actually a podcast. And I'm curious about that because you, um, it was just this past month that you launched your first episode. Is that accurate? That's right. That's right. So I've launched the first episode. I have, I think, six posted. I've recorded about 
you know, six or seven more. I'm trying to sort of get get the stockpile the episodes. Yep. And so they'll be released yep. once a week. And the purpose of the episode, this goes back to maybe as we got started here, what I feel called to do is to try to help Christian congregants in church life to stay deeply engaged with understanding of psychological health and to move in that direction. And, you know, thinking about Christians often as underserved, and there's maybe a skepticism of of psychology. And so I want to stay deeply engaged. So what I do in the podcast is I present a topic. It might be avoidance. It might be uncertainty. It might be, you know, this kind of repetitive thinking rumination we talked about today in this podcast. Uh, but but I, I present a topic and and then I go over what, what does secular psychology have to say about the topic? Because I think there still can be some insights there, of course. I, I still, I think I'm a student of a lot of that research, but, you know, recognizing that there are also worldview assumptions attached. And so I can disentangle those uh you know seeing the different components of a bird's nest kind of a thing mm. and and then and then i want to go into a biblical understanding of the topic to stay deeply engaged and and then to to engage with classic christian spiritual writings because i think oftentimes we sometimes as christian mental health professionals we can neglect this idea that we have really psychologists from from you know uh, psychology housed in philosophy and theology thinkers who really tried to understand the mind and human behavior and what to do with suffering. And and so I try to engage with classic Christian spiritual writings. And then I move into a 10-minute practice of Christian prayer, meditation, contemplation, so that there's an application piece. So I want the podcast to be 30 minutes a week. It's typically been about 45 minutes because there's just so much ground to cover. But really, it's helping Christians to understand the psychological topic its relevance in the Christian life, and then how to engage with Christian practices. And a big part of it is, I think, seeing that mindfulness is everywhere right now, from podcasts to to different kinds of, uh, you know, programs. And I want to offer something for Christians pragmatically to to be educated on, to, to be anchored to some of the research that's coming out, and then to practice so that they can pursue psychological and spiritual health. That's really neat. I, I mean, I, I, uh, I'm excited for this project. I'm excited for your podcast. Um, I want it to just be super successful. Um, I think it's a, a incredibly valuable tool, and that's, I mean, that's one of the reasons why um, I do the Well Mind is because I think this free to consumer uh, information, like yeah. we don't, we don't want to just preserve concepts, ideas, notions in peer-reviewed journal articles. I mean, that's a great, that's a great place. Um, but to have people have things accessible, you know, through their phone, through their podcast system, like whatever it is, um, to be able to access this. And, you know, I think it can, it, it just, it, it raises everybody up Mm -hmm. to be able to be, uh, thinking about these things to having these conversations with each other. Um, so if, uh, I will, put a link in the show notes for today's episode, like to your podcast and those kind of things so that people can go and check that out. I definitely encourage that. Um, I think there's a tremendous value in, um, in what you're bringing uh, into the community in that sense. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. I appreciate that. So what, um, what are some, so you've got that project going. Um, 
I think you're you're going about it the right way having a bank. I I know that's when I started uh, the Well Mind. I think I had probably eight or nine like mm-hmm. episodes, um, like set to go. It was of course during the pandemic, so then mm-hmm. I was publishing them on a weekly basis. Um, of course, I have to slow down uh, with uh, a few irons in the fire, sure. uh, as you as you understand. So, <laughs> um, you know, it's at a sustainable place for me right now, I think. But uh, yeah, I, I it, maybe that'll change in future seasons and I'll be able to do more. And um, But uh, yeah, I just think it's such a, a valuable uh, medium. So what other, what other kind of, I don't know if you call them projects or, mm-hmm. or things that you're working on right now um, that, that you'd like to, to share about? Yeah, maybe two quick things. I, so in about three weeks or so, I have a, so I, I just released a faith-based acceptance and commitment therapy, the textbook for counselors and therapists. And then I have a workbook for clients coming out, faith-based act coming out, I think November 1st. And so that should be out. And my hope is that can be accessible. And that's the second edition, right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Uh, thanks yep. for clarifying that. Yep. Second edition, first edition came out maybe five or six years ago, and this is a second edition. So I've, you know, tried to add exercises, tighten up some of the language, make it a smoother flow, those kinds of things we do with updated editions. And so I I hope it's an improvement and it will be accessible. A lot of the things we talked about today are really in there. And it's presented in a delivery method that's that's contemporary, given that ACT is so popular right now. And I think resonates so deeply with uh, I think how people are now having to deal with suffering with with this understanding that the optimism is kind of faded away, uh, that we have to relate differently to it. So check that out. One other thing, I'm, it'll be out in February. Myself and three colleagues, we wrote a book called Healing Conversations on Race. And so this was based on 2020 and all the, the racial injustice and things that were happening around that time. And myself and uh, three colleagues, two African-American social workers in my college at my university and a, 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 a biracial Christian, uh, black and white Christian psychologist uh, who also teaches with me in, in the PsyD program at CBU. We came together and we started having these more vulnerable, intentional conversations on what does it look like to create unity within the body of Christ? I mean, there were a lot of secular approaches out there, best-selling books, but we wanted to start and end with scripture and a biblical worldview. And so our model really looks at Christ-likeness as central to having healing conversations. And we don't aim for a macro approach. There are a lot of approaches out there that look at, you know, systemic injustices and what to do there. For us, it's one-on-one conversations with cross-racial Christians in order to cultivate Christ-likeness and have deeper, more vulnerable conversations to really, at the end of the day, we might describe it as lamenting together about the injustice of racism in a fallen world and that we're oftentimes so tragically segregated in in our churches and and we need to come together to talk about the pain of racism to talk about some of the difficulties of of our differences and to find unity in Christ and so we engage with the psychology literature specifically cultural humility which is really popular right now we all we we use attachment theory and looking at creating secure attachment and then we engage deeply with the spiritual formation literature and this idea of Christ-likeness and using Christian practices, many of which we've talked about today, 
to yeah. to cultivate really uh, the fruit of the spirit as we have these conversations. So we're really excited about that book and hoping that it's going to be a resource for Christian churches and therapists working with clients, uh, also in Christian universities for students and faculty. So we have uh, hopes that it's going to be something that'll be helpful for Christian communities. Yeah, that's outstanding. Um, and obviously, this is the first time I'm hearing about this, but I, I just, I'm very excited uh, about that project. And it sounds like uh, first part of next year is when you hope to have that uh, released. Yeah, yeah. It's and it's already posted on InterVarsity Press's website. That's the publisher, and then also Amazon. So you can check it out and and you know, pr- there's a press kit on there too. So you can kind of get some information on what it is. And but yeah, we're we're hopeful and and excited and. And uh, we 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 wrote it uh, a couple of years ago. It just takes a long time to come out, and so our hope is it's going to be something that Christians really resonate with. Yep. Awesome. So if I'll I'll uh, track down some links for some of that, like on University Press, and uh, include those in the show notes. And then maybe when we get closer to the publication, or shortly thereafter, maybe. Maybe that's a time for us to have another conversation and invite some of your colleagues in on this too. That would be uh, yeah. that would be a special uh, opportunity, I think, too. We'd we'd love to. I think that's that's our hope is to really get the word out and and have yeah. these conversations. You know, one podcast at a time. So we'd yep. be glad to do it. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So if people want to learn more about uh, the work that you're doing, um, or uh, even Uh, follow up on some of the content and topics. Obviously, you've talked about the workbook that you have, uh, kind of the more textbook, which I would say is uh, excellent and probably good for people in the helping field that are really thinking through how how do I apply this in a helping sense, but workbook being maybe more personal, like what can I do with this? Right. How can I learn and grow in these practices? Um, are there any other resources um, or kind of uh, forms of media that you you would point people to that we haven't already talked about? Yeah. I mean, I have a website that's kind of compiled all this stuff. So just my name, joshuanab.com. And on the website, I have links to my yeah. books and and I even have you know audio files for some of these guided practices for free I have the manuals that I've developed that are I would call them programs not necessarily therapy but you know that I've I've published the research findings in academic journals, but the manuals are free to access online. I have those there, uh, information on my podcast, all that's on my website. So uh, you can take a look and then that's a place to contact me as well through my website. Fantastic. Josh, it has been a joy uh, and a pleasure to be able to spend this time with you today. Thank you so very much for your contributions to the larger community, to the Christian community in terms of mental health, um, and certainly to the well mind. It's just been awesome, Josh. Thank you. Well, thank you, Ben. And I appreciate your podcast and this conversation and, and your listeners for being deeply engaged in, in, in many of these areas. So yeah, thanks for that and, and looking forward to maybe coming on again. A big thank you to Josh for joining the WellMind community and thank you for spending your time with me. If you enjoyed our conversation, please check out previous episodes, click rate and subscribe through your podcast app and let people know about the WellMind. Share the episode with someone you think might enjoy giving it a listen. Be sure to check out the links in the show notes for the access to resources and information Josh was referencing during our discussion today. 
Many thanks, as always, to the staff here in the Bethany Lutheran College podcast studio. You guys are amazing, and you make the well-mind possible. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, be well.